Aphrodite, a humorous Regency novel. Chapter 18. On the following day, the Hartwood ladies were looking forward to spending a quiet day at home to recuperate after their first London soiree, which had not broken up until after two in the morning. However, they had barely finished breakfast and made themselves comfortable in the drawing room when the door knocker sounded through the house. Within a few minutes, Leighton entered, bearing a calling card on a silver salver, and announced that a Mrs. Hall and her son had called and were asking if her ladyship was at home to visitors. I don't know a Mrs. Hall, said Lady Hartwood, accepting the card with a puzzled expression. She read the black sloping script neatly printed on the card, but it did nothing to prod her memory. Do you know a Mrs. Hall, love? April looked over her shoulder at the card. No, I don't believe... Oh, yes, there was a Mr. Hall introduced to me last night. Ah, that would be it then, said Lady Hartwood, with cheerful resignation, well used to being visited by the mothers of the gentlemen who thought themselves in love with her daughter. I hope he did not misread my intentions, said April. He undoubtedly did so, love. You know by now men are sadly addle-brained in your company, and even trifling signs of attentiveness on your part can be misconstrued as encouragement. It would be a stretch indeed to misconstrue my compassion as encouragement, April told her mother. Mr. Hall was so anxious and stuttered so painfully when he spoke to me, it was impossible not to feel sorry for him and try to put him at ease. I don't doubt that your behaviour was all that was proper, Lady Hartwood returned. Only, oh well, never mind. There's nothing for it, I suppose, but to see them. Thank you, Leighton. You may show them in. And you'd best send up the tea tray. I fear this is not going to be a short call. When mother and son were shown into the room a little while later, Mrs. Hall was found to be a tall, lanky woman with faded blue eyes and an aura of decrepitude about her. This was further accentuated by her dove-grey walking dress, which was composed of various floating layers of chiffon and gave her the appearance of a fashionable ghost. She also looked to be a good deal embarrassed. Mr. Hall was even taller than his mother and painfully thin, with an abundance of ginger hair that stuck out from his head and only added to his excessive height. He had a pleasant countenance that was animated by the adoring look in his eyes as they settled on April. Lady Hartwood took all this in at a glance and, her compassion stirred, greeted her visitors with perhaps greater warmth than their tentative connection deserved. Mrs. Hall explained the reason for their visit was owing to the fact that she had heard so much about her ladyship and her daughter from Mrs. Jameson, and, being very sorry to have missed them at last night's soiree, which she had been unable to attend, she had determined to pay them a call today. This pretext must have sounded as flimsy to her own ears as it did to Lady Hartwood's, for her embarrassment only seemed to increase, and she abruptly sat down in the nearest chair before her hostess had a chance to invite her to do so. Lady Hartwood had no doubt that Mrs. Hall had been coerced to pay this visit, and, seating herself beside her, immediately set out to put her at ease, in much the same way April had done with her son on the previous evening. Left to entertain Mr. Hall alone, April indicated for him to take a seat beside her on the settee. When he complied, she offered him the reserved smile that had dashed the hopes of many a suitor, and asked him if he had enjoyed himself last night. She was agreeably surprised to discover, when Mr. Hall did not have an audience, he was able to speak sensibly and with barely a stutter. 
From the topic of last night, they moved on to a discussion of the weather and the various restrictions it placed on one when in town, and they were just beginning to touch on Mr Nash's architectural brilliance, seen to outstanding effect in his design of Regent Street, when the butler entered again to inform them that a Mr Kepling had called. Lady Hartwood asked for him to be sent up, and he was soon entering the room with a shy smile, as if uncertain of his welcome, and a posy of daisies clutched in his hand. Mr Kepling, how wonderful to see you again, Lady Hartwood greeted him with her lovely smile. I hope I'm not intruding, he asked diffidently. Not at all, replied her ladyship. Do you know Mrs Hoare and her son? Mr Kepling visibly relaxed under this warm welcome and offered up a cheerful greeting to the other visitors, whom he seemed to know quite well. Mr Hoare was not at all pleased to have his private conversation with April brought to an end and made no effort to respond to his rival's friendliness, restricting himself to casting dark looks in his direction. These are for you, Miss Hartwood, said Mr Kepling, holding out the daisies to April. I hope you like them. My mother used to like flowers, and I believe you mentioned last night that you are also partial to them. I wasn't certain what colour you preferred, but I thought I was safe in choosing white. If you object to white, I can go at once and find whatever colour you wish. April could not help but be charmed. Mr Kepling reminded her of an exuberant, overgrown puppy and his little posy of daisies, with their crooked stems and wilting heads, was quite possibly the most humble gift she had ever received from a gentleman. "'Oh, how lovely they are!' she exclaimed, taking the posy from him. "'White flowers are my favourite. Thank you indeed. Please, won't you be seated?' As she settled herself back on the settee, she was startled to realise that Mr Kepling had the intention of squeezing himself in beside her, effectively wedging her in between her two admirers. The settee had not been designed to allow two sizeable gentlemen and a lady to converse in comfort, and particularly not when one gentleman was showing bristle while the other was sublimely unaware and full of good cheer. April had to exercise considerable adroitness to nudge along a three-way conversation under such inauspicious circumstances. The arrival of the tea tray was the first opportunity she had for escape, and, rising quickly before her mother could do so, she declared she would pour for the party. She was interrupted in this task, a few minutes later, by the reappearance of Leighton. He was out of breath and none too pleased to have been made to climb the stairs yet again. Still, he managed to announce three new gentlemen callers in a voice almost devoid of irritation. Lady Hartwood was just welcoming the new arrivals, of which the Duke of Clarendon was one, when the door-knocker echoed up the stairs once again. Leighton forgot himself sufficiently to groan. April met her mother's eyes across the room with a laughing look of dismay, while Lady Hartwood allowed herself a triumphant smile, and, when her drawing-room was full to bursting with eligible gentlemen soon after, she could not have been more pleased on her daughter's behalf. "'I see I am not the only one to have found you at home today,' said His Grace, approaching April as she poured the tea for the newcomers. And I'm not in the least surprised. You will be the reigning belle of next year's season. He spoke in a manner calculated to please, but April thought he was out of spirits. There was a certain reserve about him that had not been present last night. You are being absurd, she laughed lightly. Of course, how could I suppose such a thing, he said smiling at her. When you are so thin of company this morning, must I apologise? Certainly you must, for you assume I wish to become a reigning belle, 
I don't, you know, so please don't think you are gratifying me by saying so. And besides, for all we know, at this very moment, any number of ladies are finding their drawing rooms invaded by gentlemen of fashion, eager for a diversion before their clubs open their doors. The Duke laughed. You wrung us, Miss Hartwood. Our clubs are already open. And not all of us are such frippery fellows. Remembering her role, April lowered her eyelids and said coyly, Certainly not you, Your Grace. I count myself honoured to have secured a visit from you today. You're not honoured in the least, he announced, with the easy camaraderie of last night. I'm fast coming to suspect my title doesn't weigh with you at all. I suppose I should act the Duke and put you in your place. But the truth is, I'm delighted. You can have no notion of how many ladies have made really quite spirited attempts to become the next Duchess of Clarendon. It has been utterly exhausting to endure it. I am quite in awe of their determination, of course, but must they be so de trop? If only they knew how they repulsed me. He shuddered delicately. I won't scruple to tell you that I too know something of being overwhelmed with attention by the opposite sex, said April laughingly. I suppose you cannot have failed to notice my face? She put on a superior expression and turned her head one way and then the other. No, indeed, quite exceptional, he replied. It must be a source of great comfort to you. Ah, it is. I like nothing better than to be left alone in front of a mirror to admire it. A giggle erupted. Then she added, We'd best stop before we're overheard and suspected of truthfulness. But I will say this, of the two of us, you are more to be pitied. My looks will fade and I shall become unremarkable by age. You and your title, however, will remain forever a prize. How appallingly true, he exclaimed, grimacing. This is a delightfully improper conversation. I'm almost in charity with my mother for pressing me to call on you. She pressed you? asked April, surprised. Yes, she's taken it into her head that we might suit. She's growing more and more desperate in her attempts to marry me off to someone, anyone. Why, thank you, said April. Has no one ever told you that you should never admit to pursuing a woman out of desperation, even if it is not your own? I shall certainly keep that in mind, he replied, should I ever wish to pursue one. However, you can't fool me. You have no wish for me to court you. I can see it in your eyes. They lack that certain sparkle of ambition I have come to recognise so well in your sex. She looked away. Their conversation was becoming too honest. The more time she spent in the Duke's company, the more she realised she liked him too well to deceive him and play with his affections. Not that he appeared to suffer from those sorts of affections in any case. Never before had she met a man so wholly unaffected by her. I wish you would call me Eustace, he said, breaking in on her thoughts. All my friends do so, particularly those who are as passionate about Keats as I am, and mourn his passing. I see I was too exuberant with my admiration of his poetry last night, she replied playfully. You are certainly the only other person I know, he said, apart from myself, of course, who can recite the whole of Ode to a Nightingale verbatim. She laughed and admitted... It is a favourite of mine. Good Lord, he exclaimed quietly all of a sudden, looking past her. Here comes the next line of attack. Turning in the direction of his gaze, she saw two newly arrived gentlemen 
and a determined-looking Mr. Hall advancing towards them. "'No doubt they want their tea,' said His Grace dryly. "'Never mind that they would never be seen dead drinking the stuff ordinarily. "'I am not brave enough to face such resolve. "'Adieu, mon ami. I depart the field of combat.' "'Don't you dare leave me, you wretch. "'You can make yourself useful and serve. "'Here.' and she thrust two teacups into his hands. End of chapter 18